0: Well, I guess I didn't uh, necessarily intend this particular message to be uh, two messages, but we needed to stop last week, so we'll try to press on uh, to the other side of things, the rest of uh, what we call this model prayer. Just to backtrack a little to remind us where we were last time. In a sense, I don't want to say there's no depth here, there is, but in a sense, these aren't super profound things. These are basic, timeless, uh, valuable principles. I'm not saying we don't need deep theology. We do. We want to teach the whole counsel of God. But I think, at least in my own experience, I think I can probably speak for a lot of you It's not the profound things that short-circuit your Christian life. We've been going through dispensationalism in Sunday school. It's important. It is important. That's why we're going through it. But it's probably not the finer points of dispensationalism that make you want to crumple up in defeat sometimes. It's probably not trying to explain the mystery between divine sovereignty and human will, although that's an important discussion that we'll never understand this side of eternity and probably ever. I want us to probe into those deep mysteries as much as we can. We want to know a lot about God. He's a great God. But again, I repeat, a lot of times it's the basics. The basics. That when we're reminded of them. Is anybody here besides me prone to forget? You've heard me say it before. It's shocking to me sometimes as a, as a preacher. I can hear things that I have preached on. I've forgotten. I mean, you'd think the guy laboring in the study to teach through this stuff would... Not let it go, but that's not the case. We need remembrance. So we're going through this very important, basic skeleton outline of prayer that the Lord introduces at the beginning of the New Testament. And again, in the parallel passage in Luke 11, the disciples hear Him pray, and they say, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So, Again, several things in that statement. One is we need to be taught. Uh, John the Baptist, even in his temporary ministry, understood not, this, not just that his disciples should pray, but he needed to teach them how. I mean, don't... You ever feel your ignorance the most trying to pray? I mean, if we have any concept of who God is, uh, we need to be taught too. Of course, they say, teach us to pray, that speaks of our need, the fact that we have spiritual enemies, daily struggles, and the fact that so much ink is spilled in the life of Christ that we see Him rising up a great while before day. Uh, We were talking on Wednesday night. It's an astounding thing. At, At one place in the Gospels, I don't remember the passage off the top of my head, but the crowd, it says, is thronging Him, literally about to crush Him. And there's these thousands of people who need things. There's those that were demon-infested. They're shrieking out, crying for deliverance. There's, I mean, over here, there's, there's people who can't walk. There's, there's lepers with, with flesh falling off their face. And all around him is a sea of human need. And what does he do? He departs to go by himself to commune with his father. So much is said there. It's not don't care, but it's know this there will always be enough needs to keep you from praying if you let them. You and I don't find time for prayer. We make time for prayer. If I told any one of you, hey, do you think you're going to have time to show up at your job this week? You'd probably look at me and go, I, it doesn't quite work that way. Actually, you see, they tell me when to be there, and if I'm not, well, I guess I'm on vacation per- permanently. But it's easy to take our spiritual disciplines and say, well, I don't have time. I'll fit it somewhere. (laughs) They teach us to pray. It speaks of need. It also speaks of how. And it is a lifelong process. And the Lord calls us children for a reason. It's okay to know that. In fact, Romans 8 encourages us that the Spirit... Helps our infirmities. He takes our groanings, which can't even be uttered. You ever have times in prayer you don't have a clue what to say? The burdens are so heavy. I've had times I've been so crushed, all I can say is help. That's it. One word. don't know what to ask for? I just want to be with God. The Holy Spirit helps with that. And this prayer, of course, is not intended to be endlessly mimicked. It's not a good luck charm. It's not a card to carry in your pocket and it sprinkles uh, holy water. It's not something you read over people when they're dying and it somehow conveys grace. Uh, The Lord, in fact, in this passage says, don't use it that way. It's not a vain repetition. There's nothing lucky about these words. He's not teaching a formula to repeat to get something from God. He's teaching the skeleton outline, the right attitude, the motivations, the ABCs of an approach to God. Of course, he begins by telling them prayer isn't for public show. And again, if we did this today, people would think us odd. But in their day, you were super spiritual and religious, Israel. If you stood on the street corner and acted like you were fasting and talk, don't speak to me. I'm too busy talking to God. And these uh, these guys would do it on the street corner, and the Lord uh, was not impressed. And in fact, what he said about them was they have their reward. In other words, when you and I do religious things for public show, uh, even if I stand up here and preach just to be seen of men, do you know what my reward is? It's people saying, nice job. Gone. In contradistinction, the Lord says, but you... When you pray, go into your closet and shut the door. The idea doesn't have to be... they didn't have closets like we do, but again, the idea was get alone with God as much as lies with you. Have a consistent place. Make time for it as much as possible. Shut out distractions. Don't bring your iPhone in there. Nothing wrong with an iPhone, but is it a distraction? (laughs) Now, listen, Your distractions do, you know, we have, we just had our seventh child and distractions and interruptions, they never happen in our house. But there's a difference between interruptions God sends when we're doing our part and interruptions that we let happen. I think we might find the interruptions really aren't that frequent so long as we do our part to enter the closet. I think it was Susanna Wesley John Wesley's mother that had a large what, they, what did they have 16 kids do you remember what it was? Busy mom and uh, when they saw mom sit down with her apron over her head That meant I'm talking to God, and it better be an emergency if you're going to talk to me. And it wasn't for public show, it was for sanity, but I'm telling you, that taught volumes of theology to those children. That was mom's closet, that was the only closet she had sometimes. But the children knew what the closet was. Sometimes it's just practicality. Getting to bed on time. Being prepared. Getting the distractions out of the way, etc. And of course, the Lord encourages an expectant attitude. Look at the promise. He that seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Again, we can say dogmatically on the statement of Christ, you and I cannot emphasize the secret place with Out being rewarded openly with God can't happen. What kind of rewards? Well, there's a lot. I don't think he's talking primarily about shiny new car, growth and grace, strength over sin, discernment, direction, peace, a satisfying closeness to the God of heaven. You know, I think of. I was going to turn there, but we won't. I think you know the passage, Exodus thirty-four. Uh, Here, Moses goes up to the mount and he's up there 40 days with God. Remember what happens? He comes down and there was something different about Moses. (laughs) But Moses didn't even know it. You see, he comes down and, and people are kind of backing away from him. your face Moses what 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 it's 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 glowing it's 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 shining now i don't happen to think Moses was up there saying dear lord god please make my face shine so everybody will notice but you see he was up there in the presence of god in secret, and it couldn't help but coming out in public. The younger generation scarcely knows how the old photography works, right? Everything's digital, but really in a lot of ways, our lives are like old photo plates. Time exposure. You spend time in the presence of God. I'm not saying your face is going to glow, but I'm saying it's going to show. It's going to show. And here's something our generation needs to hear. He that would know God must spend time with Him. And there are no shortcuts. We've never had more electronic information than we have now. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. What if a person knows all about deep theology? What if they're familiar with every current event and theological discussion? What if they heard all the great sermons by all the great names we know and they're reading and they're listening incessantly? But they neglect the secret place with God. What does knowledge do? It puffs up. See, it's in prayer that we're being changed into His image time exposure like Moses. Of course, the Lord says, don't use vain repetitions like the heathens. He's not saying don't pray long, but don't think that you have to butter God up or repeat yourself over and over and over and over and over again, humdrum, hummany, 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 and watermelon, 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 watermelon. Some people really think that. I mean, there are people that name the name of Christ. They have no idea how to pray without opening up some prayer book and reciting something. It's tragic. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Books like The Valley of Vision by Arthur Bennett. He actually comprised it. He didn't write it, but it's a collection of Puritan prayers. Fantastic book. You've heard me quote it. But he didn't write that book to be a vain repetition. He wrote it to be meditations to think on as we approach God. He didn't write it to be something you repeat to get some kind of luck out of it. So the Lord says don't use empty and useless repetition because the pagan idea is the more I talk, the more God has to hear. The more I repeat myself, the more He's inclined. And uh, There's endless examples of that. What do you think rosary beads are? They're exactly what the Lord said not to do. And ironically, this prayer is part of that cycle Which is disobeying exactly what Christ said. Don't use this as a vain repetition. Who does that? Heathens do that. And he says, All right, don't pray like the heathen world around you, but after this manner pray ye. Okay, here's some basics. Of course, it begins by recognition of who God is. And we talked about when He says, our Father which art in heaven, that that would have arrested the attention of the multitude immediately. You can go to Hosea 11.1, for instance, and see God referred to Israel as His Son collectively. But though men like Abraham and Moses are called friends of God, they would never have dared to say, God is my Father. wasn't given to them. They would have never said that. But then you get to the New Testament. And the Son of God standing there in human flesh, who's about to die for the sins of the world, says, when you pray, Our Father. And uh, yes, He meant that for us to instantly think of the human relationship, which is a picture, albeit a very imperfect one, a tender relationship of permanence, of love and care, an implication that He wants to help me, that He longs for my companionship. I challenge us to think about how often do you just stop to consider God as your Father and what that means. And behold what manner of love the Father's bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. First John 3, 1 John 3.1 And then it's hallowed be thy name. And of course, uh, the word hallowed is often translated sanctified. The idea is to uh, keep God as separate in our minds, to make holy. We don't make him holy, but we recognize and desire a proper reverence and yes, a fear of God. The name Father doesn't take away fear. And we see a balance The Lord begins with our Father, hallowed be thy name. Tender, permanent, loving relationship with those that come to Christ through faith, but don't forget who it is that you're talking to. I probably don't need to remind us, the writer of Scripture, when the Lord appeared to them in the New Testament, what was their reaction? Hey, give me five, dude. fell down like a dead man. Why? Because they feared Him. So it's not a carnal familiarity like the contemporary megachurch would push. God as Father does not mean He's drug off His throne of holiness and thinks everything is fine. But it's an open doorway before us to have fellowship with this high and lofty One. And to see him for who he is. And then it's a submission, a resignation to the perfect will of God, which I think is one of the hardest things in prayer is to become objective. I mean, what's the central lesson of Romans 12:1 and 2? Present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice. Why bodies? Your mouth, your hands, your eyes, your ears, your feet, your mind. All of you. So Real prayer, as taught by the Son of God, immediately recognizes who God is and is aimed at a complete submission to His will. In other words, prayer is not primarily bending God to my will. Prayer is primarily recognizing who God is and what He wants so that I can do it. Then it's thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And boy, there's a challenge in our life. Do I obey God as instantly as those that are in glory? The answer would be no. But there's a desire in the redeemed heart who really wants fellowship with God to be led by the glance of the eye. To do His bidding. To want to walk with Him. And out of that right attitude comes the petition. Now notice in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Now, notice there's no begging or pleading on one hand. Oh, please, 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 pretty pretty, please, 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 please. As though God doesn't want to give. But notice what else is not there. It is not demanding. You know, the the so-called prosperity gospel, there's so many problems with it, but there are actually... I didn't dig any up. I could find them for you. You have these kooks at these conferences teaching people to command God to do things. Oh God, I'm binding you to give me that jet airplane! God is not your bellhop. And He'll never be. Can I remind us, eternity is not marked by God running around giving me everything I want. You know why there's bliss there? Because you and I are finally brought into perfect conformity to His person and His will and to worship Him properly like He deserves. It is total blasphemy to demand things from Him like that. So, there's not begging, there's not demanding, but what is it? What's the attitude you would say here? It's confidence. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, because the hard attitude is correct. I mean, think about this for a minute. If you were pinned down and had to answer this, what is it that really gives boldness in prayer? What is it? Boldness isn't presumption. I'm not deciding what I want and then keep begging. Real scriptural boldness comes from grasping hold of who God is, what He has made us in Christ, and submission to Him without exception. Think about this for a minute. Let me me just be real basic. God is gracious, and most of us probably haven't missed a meal in a while unless we planned on it. But technically speaking, the case could be made scripturally. You and I have no right to ask God for food unless our intention is to use that energy and sustenance to do His will. I'm not saying He won't give it, but I'm saying that you can prove scripturally. You see, why does this hypothetical person say, Give me my daily bread because He wants to use it to do the will of God. That's why. I mean, what's the principle in Matthew 6.33 if you were to flip over there? The Lord's talking about all the things the Gentiles seek. And He says, but seek ye first for you. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And what? All these things shall be added. In other words, boldness in prayer really depends largely on having my own priorities straight. It's a good place to stop and check. Am I putting my will in everywhere and asking God to fill in the blanks? I mean, are there areas I'm knowingly ignoring plain scriptural commands? Are there areas I know I'm disobeying, but I want God to guide me over here, but I'm not going to give Him this? Wrong attitude. The idea of Matthew 6.33, the principle we can pull from that is uh, make God's priorities your priorities. And out of that, the boldness to ask for everything you need is going to come and it will be given. And by the way, let me say this. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Uh, don't get me wrong. It's not wrong to say in Jesus' name, Amen. Most of us do that. In fact, I do that I think most of the time up here. But did you know that is not what the New Testament means when it talks about praying in Jesus' name? I mean, you want to talk about a vain repetition sometimes. Some people look at Jesus' name like holy water. As long as I say in Jesus' name at the end, well, God has to do it. Because after all, didn't Jesus say if you ask the Father anything in My name, He'll give it to you? I remember my in-laws telling me a story of some people that had bought into that. they're playing some game, some card game or something. the wife pipes up before and says, we're going to beat you at this game in Jesus' name. Because that guarantees victory. What about when the other person says the same thing? I don't know. Anyway, I remember my relative saying, we were fervently begging God to make them lose to prove a point, and they did. Praying in Jesus' name is not just saying words, sprinkling it with mystical power. It is a confidence that what I'm asking for is conformed to His person and His will. It's me asking and praying things that I'm confident He is pleased with. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. All right. notice. Give us what? Our bread. Why does he say our bread, not our caviar? Not that I don't like caviar, but maybe you do. Uh, Why does he say bread and not filet mignon? Well, that's pretty good too. What I'm emphasizing, of course, is that we live in an affluent culture. The Lord's placed us here. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think if we're honest, we sometimes have a hard time discerning between niceties and necessities. And I wonder if there's times God is providing our necessities but not our niceties and we're panicked and wondering where His provision is. I know that's happened to me. I think of a missionary. Now, I don't like rice and beans very much, I'll be honest, but I remember a missionary talking about the story was relayed to me and our pastor asked him, well, what do you eat down there? He said, well, for breakfast we have rice and beans, and for lunch we have rice and beans, but for dinner we like to mix it up and have beans and rice. Sustenance. Sustenance. In other words, the idea is being contented with manna if God's going to withhold the quail and having a pilgrim mindset that this world's not my home. I'm not saying the niceties aren't blessings from God. They are, but we need to check ourselves when we say God's not providing and say, is He really, number one, am I being a good steward of what He's providing? And number two, is He really providing my needs, but maybe not my wants? Maybe my needs are, or maybe my wants are the problem. Now, notice it says, give us this day. And the word daily bread, now, why that? Why not say, Lord, give us this year our daily bread and then I can check this prayer off my calendar for 364 more days. Why would he emphasize daily? How many of you have been in a position where you have to pray for daily food? I haven't been there much, but I've been there. (laughs) You see, each day brings with it new objects for prayer and will never outgrow or outpace those needs. In other words, there's no storing up prayer in the barn. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Uh, No amount of praying today is going to make up for yesterday's neglect. Yesterday is past. No amount of praying today is going to render tomorrow's prayer unnecessary. I think the manna is such a tremendous picture, isn't it? I mean, why is it? Think about this logically, what would you want to do? Uh, Myself, if the Lord was going to rain manna from heaven, I would want a Costco mindset. I would. Lord, isn't it more efficient for me to do this once a month and stick it in the, the closet in my pantry? I'll pray underneath it, but there'll be storage up above. And I'll do this once. Why did the Lord have them do it every single day? Sometimes the Lord's not impressed with our innovations of efficiency in our spiritual life, and He wants time. I think prayer is kind of like that manna. Gather it daily. 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 A habit of daily dependence. And then you see the pronoun, our bread. (laughs) a hardened submission to God that makes requests for self is going to spread out and make requests for others. And the will of God is going to be desired for them. We're not the only one in existence. Now, notice verse 12. And forgive us our debts. Part of this, of course, is dealing with sin, confessing sin. Now that, I'm not going to say a lot about that, First uh, John develops that more. We have, to, we have to understand this has developed this doctrine more fully in the New Testament. So comparing Scripture with Scripture, it's not a ho-hum, end of the day, oh, forgive me for whatever I did today. Uh, what you find over in 1 John is not a mass confession. Confessing sin is specific. Uh, if your confession of sin is, Lord, forgive me if I did something, you're not confessing sin properly. You don't confess sins you don't know if you did. God, remember, what He's after in this whole bit is not you get the list of offenses correct, it's He wants heart fellowship with you. He wants to know if your deeds and your ways are in lockstep with Him or going your own direction. Can two have fellowship unless they be agreed? No! God's not moving. Uh, When we're going the wrong way, we need to get on board with Him. That's the idea with confession of sin. And of course, There's a need for daily cleansing as we walk through a corrupt world. It's an interesting word, debt. I mean, not paying what we owe, coming short of the glory of God. Now, I thank God for one that that debt has been satisfied judicially. My standing before God is one of no more debt. But when it comes to daily fellowship, grieving the Spirit... If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now notice that statement, the end of verse 12, forgive us our debts, how? As we forgive our debtors. So he links God's forgiveness here to our forgiveness of other people. Once again, we went into this in great depth in our series on forgiveness, but let me just touch on it again. Verse 14 and 15 give a little more of an explanation. I think it's interesting that right after this model prayer, the Lord immediately jumps to the subject of an unforgiving spirit. That really, it's striking. I mean, He tells these people how to pray, how to approach God, at least the bare bones of it, and the minute He's done, The minute He says, Amen. Oh, by the way, if you don't forgive other people, God is not going to forgive you. Huh? Now there's several ways that can be taken. One is, well, that must mean I lose my salvation. That is absolutely not what that's saying. I'm not going to get off on that, but I trust you know the rest of the New Testament well enough to know that's not the case. Number two would be, this is talking about an evidence of a lost condition. That this is a mark of somebody who's lost. There may be some merit to that, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. In fact, you can see the use of the word father again. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will forgive you. That's a permanent relationship. He's speaking to His covenant people, and what He's saying is, He's not talking about judicial forgiveness, nothing to do with salvation. He's talking about fellowship with Him. Remember, uh, 1 John says, if you confess sin, God will forgive you. Well, I thought I was forgiven. Yes, you are with respect to damnation. But when it comes to fellowship with God, we know the same thing with our own children. They're never going to stop being your child, but they can sure be out of fellowship with you and have to deal with some things, even though sonship hasn't changed. So the idea is, he's saying, if you... Now granted, there's again, if you remember that series on forgiveness, you can't always take it the full cycle because you're not responsible for how people respond. But if you've done whatever part you can to live peaceably and to deal with sin, and whether or not somebody responds rightly and repents or not you can still get rid of bitterness Godward, resting in His sovereignty in the cross of Christ and the fact that for your part, He's let you have this and you've got to see God's part in it. So, he's saying don't let bitterness and an unforgiving spirit creep in because you're going to break your own fellowship with God. 1 Peter 3.7, talking to husbands and wives. He's telling husbands, dwell with your wife according to knowledge, giving honor unto her as the weaker vessel. But then he says something sobering that your prayers be not hindered. Husbands, you mistreat your wife, God's going to ignore your prayers. It's that serious. Alright, so there's dealing with sin, dealing with an unforgiving spirit, and then look at verse 13. There's the recognition of our own weakness and blindness, as well as our own tendency to go astray. Look at verse 13. Maybe that's puzzled you. I I remember it's done it to me before. And lead us not into temptation. (laughs) Wait a minute. I thought God's not the author of sin. Well, He's not the author of sin. Now, that word temptation can refer to trials, but it can also refer to just sinful temptations. I wonder if those words came back to the same disciples a little bit later on. Some of them were probably there at the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 26. In fact, this is, these are the first two times that word temptation is used in the New Testament. He tells them, Uh, to pray that God will keep you out of temptation. And then Matthew 26, here's what he tells them. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he tells them, pray, because there is a temptation to forsake me coming that you can't even imagine. And the only way you're going to stand is if you're preemptively praying going into this battle in advance. In fact, he actually tells them that. Get up and pray, or you're going to get steamrolled. Remember, Paul said, "To will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. The Spirit absolutely is willing sometimes but the flesh is weak. And there is a disconnect between godly desires and the performance of them. We do find our desires... Godly desires and the strivings of our flesh are in different spiritual stratospheres. One is on board with God and one is against Him. It really is an inner war. So it's not that God leads us directly into into temptation, but the issue is we're prone to follow at a distance and miss the pathway and walk into them. Let me make this sobering application. There are certain temptations that you and I will face. Directly as a result of our own prayerlessness. That's serious stuff. We lose sight of our constant need of deliverance, of gathering the manna, and I think God at times will give the devil leave to deal with us if necessary. I think a pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress, he heads into the Valley of Humiliation. Remember what happens? Apollyon straddles his pathway. And God let him do that battle to teach him some things. And I have no doubt there's battles you and I face directly because we didn't pray first. They have to come. Then there's the recognition of God's sovereign right of rulership over us. Verse 13, Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Why? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It reminds me of Revelation 4.11. Here God is being worshipped with these words. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. For Thine is the kingdom. What does that mean? He has 100% authority, and He deserves it, and it belongs to Him, and that's never ever going away. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power. Meaning, all ability to do anything ultimately comes from Him. Thine is the glory. All that is truly beautiful or distinct or worthy of praise and worship. He is the focal point, the center of attention, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. And that's the case forever. That will always be the case. So you see in this basic prayer that's taught, it's really sandwiched in between layers of a proper view of and submission to God's eternal dominion, which is utterly necessary in our approach to God. That is where boldness comes from. All right, just some practical things in conclusion. We'll be done. I mentioned this is going to be basic, and I hope it is. Let me just say this. A a, a message like this is not a club. It's intended to be an open doorway. If you feel your failure here, which probably most of us do to some degree, Don't hang your head and stay there. Confess sin. Take God's forgiveness. Get up and go forward. I'll remind us there is never, ever, ever any merit or any help in self pity or despair. You see, the flesh convinces us it's noble and it's necessary. Oh, and you've offended God too badly this time. You better stay away from Him for six months and fix this yourself. How's that going? Listen, there is no impure motive you have. There is no wrong thought process you have. There is no theological problem you have. There is no priority problem you have that will not be fixed withdrawing near to God. All those are excuses of the flesh. Every one of them. Secondly, I want to say the many promises about prayer in the Scriptures, especially the New Testament. Listen, if you're a Christian, they are for you. An infinite God could see only you when He said it with respect to you. I think sometimes we get this Christian superhero mindset. Well, it's just for a spiritual few. I love what James emphasizes in chapter 5 just in case we think Elijah was made of something different. He says, Elijah was a man of, you remember the words, like passions with you. And uh, we could jump to the New Testament. It's not expressly said, but I can guarantee you, based on other Scriptures, Paul was a man of like passions. You know there were times Paul didn't want to pray? There were times Paul didn't feel anything. There were times that Elijah would have been so convinced of his miserable failure. In fact, uh, you can go there in 1 Kings 19 and sit with him under the juniper tree. Oh, he was a man of like passions. All men have been. All men have had the same sinful, corrupt, evil flesh. There are no superheroes in Christianity. None. Thirdly, don't try to be Moses overnight. I think you know what I mean. I'm not saying don't take steps forward, but I remember well in college, here comes the evangelist through, and this happened probably three or four times a year, and he preaches on how you have to have a powerful prayer life. Next morning, half the alarms in the dorm go off at 415 And uh, then the snooze alarms go off until six. And then in three days, the owners of those alarms give up in despondency until the next time somebody preaches on prayer and the whole cycle repeats itself. You know, in a way, it's like lifting weights. Use the time you do have. Sometimes I really think it comes down to stewardship. I've chided myself on this before. Lord, I need more time. And the voice of the Spirit is silently saying, He that is faithful in the least will be faithful in much. What do you do with the time you do have? You and I have no business telling God we need more time if I refuse to use the time that I do have profitably. Lord, I want to pray two hours. Will you pray a half an hour? Well, I want to pray longer. Start there. Build consistently there. Build up that stamina there. Another important thing that needs emphasizing. This will not happen without deliberate, consistent effort. Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.7, Well, I thought Timothy was a superhero. And he tells him, listen to what he says to him. Exercise thyself unto godliness. The picture is the gymnastics of their day. Strenuous wrestling effort, pouring sweat, veins popping out. And he's saying, Timothy, you put in effort on your side. Yes, God works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. But if you don't reciprocate that and put in sweat and effort and deliberate toil to exercise yourself unto godliness, it will not happen. Let me put it this way. Nobody can draw near to God for you. I'm not pointing anybody out. Just just examine examine where you are in your own walk with God, wherever that is. You will stay in that condition or go backwards until you die. And God will let you. If you do not determine you're going to do something about this, That's true of everyone in this room, including me. Exercise thyself unto godliness. Sometimes that's practical choices. Maybe it means accountability with somebody. Maybe it means to go home and get rid of the things that I know are undercutting prayer and my desire for it. Maybe we've got some house cleaning to do. Uh, Maybe there's some priorities that need to change. Take your pick and make application. We're all in a slightly different station. Let me finish with this. Expect war and emotions to fight you and times of seeming drought, and remember, God does not change. I want to read something to you in... uh, It's not a real long account. It's just a couple of pages, a few pages, but I think it'll be helpful. This will be the last thing. But I think sometimes we do ask the practical question How? How do I become disciplined in prayer when I know there's times I do not want to? Somebody says, Actually, let me correct that. I want to, but I don't want to. It's a strange paradox. I can hear a message like this, and I'm determined tomorrow morning I don't want to, and so I don't. Now, I don't want to be a hypocrite and press on when I don't want to. I also don't want to stay where I am now. And so the cycle continues, and it continues, and it continues. I I want to read you an account that was written by James Sidlow Baxter. If you're not familiar with him, he was a a Baptist minister. He actually spanned most of the 1900s, 1903 to 1999. And uh, a godly man, written some tremendous materials. But he was asked by a group of pastors that direct question. How how can we go about becoming disciplined in prayer when it's such a war? And uh, I know this is a pastor's perspective, but I guarantee you this will resonate with every one of us. Let me read this to you. Dr. J. Sidlow Baxter once shared a leaf from his own pastoral diary with a group of pastors who asked just the same question. He began by telling them how in 1928 he entered the ministry determined he would be the most Methodist Baptist of pastors. Now, if you don't know what he means, he was Baptist theologically But Methodists got their name because of their methods. They were very, very disciplined for the most part. And uh, they were very strong in that area. And so if you read his own account, uh, he went into the ministry, he was determined, I'm getting up at this time, I'm having this much prayer, I'm having this much study, I'm going to do this, I'm going to write these letters, I'm going to be a Methodist Methodist Baptist. I'm going to be a man of prayer. However, it was not long until his increasing pastoral responsibilities, administrative duties, and the subtle subterfuges of pastoral life began to crowd prayer out. By the way, at this point in his ministry, the church is growing like crazy. His influence is growing. People are being converted. But he finds prayer is getting shoved out. He began to get used to it, making excuses for himself. Then one morning came a crisis as he stood over his work-strewn desk and looked at his watch. The voice of the Spirit was calling him to pray, but at the same time another velvety little voice told him to just be practical and get his letters answered. That he ought to face up to the fact that he wasn't of the spiritual sort, that only a few people could be like that. That God needs Martha's just as much as Mary's. That did it, he said. That last remark, hurt like a dagger blade, I could not bear to think it was true. He was horrified by his ability to rationalize away the very ground of his mysterious vitality and power. That morning Sidlow Baxter took a good look into his heart and he found there was a part of him that did not want to pray and yet a part that did. I'll be honest, I don't know how many times I've gone to God and said, Lord, praying is the last thing I want to do right now. Do you know God's not shocked by that? Not at all. In fact, He's pleased by that openness. So Sid Baxter took a good look into his heart. He found there's a part of him that did not want to pray and a part that did. The part that didn't want to pray was his emotions. And the part that did was his intellect and will. This analysis paved the way to victory. All right, now here's his actual quote. As never before, my will and I stood face to face. I asked my will the straight question, Will, are you ready for an hour of prayer? My will answered, here I am and quite ready if you are. So Will and I linked arms and turned in to go for our time of prayer. All at once, the emotions began pulling the other way and protesting, we're not coming. I saw Will stagger just a bit, so I asked, can you stick it out, Will? And my will replied, yes, if you can. So Will went and we got down to prayer, dragging those wriggling emotions with us. It was a struggle all the way through. At one point, when Will and I were in the middle of an earnest intercession, I suddenly found one of those traitorous emotions had snared my imagination and had run off to the golf course. It was all I could do to drag the wicked rascal back. A bit later, I found another of the emotions had sneaked away with some off-guard thoughts and was in the pulpit two days ahead of schedule, preaching a sermon that I had not yet finished preparing. I can tell you I know that one well trying to talk to God, and your mind jumps up here and starts going through the sermon, and you're going, no, not now. At the end of the hour, if you had asked me, have you had a good time? I would have had to reply, no. It's been a wearying wrestle with contrary emotions and a truant imagination from beginning to end. What is more, that battle with the emotions continued for between two and three weeks, and if you'd asked me at the end of those two and three weeks, Have you had a good time in your daily praying? I would have had to confess, no. At times it seemed as though the heavens were brass. God was too distant to hear. The Lord Jesus was strangely aloof. And prayer accomplished nothing. Yet something was happening. For one thing, Will and I really taught the emotions that we were completely independent of them. Also one morning, about two weeks after the contest began, just when Will and I were going in for another time of prayer, I overheard one of the emotions whisper to the other, come on you guys, it's no use wasting time anymore resisting, they're going to go just the same. That morning for the first time, even though emotions were uncooperative, they were at least quiescent, which allowed Will and me to get on with prayer undistractedly. Then another couple weeks after that, what do you think happened? During one of our prayer times, when Will and I were no more thinking of our emotions than the man on the moon, one of the most vigorous of the emotions unexpectedly sprang up and shouted, Hallelujah! At which all the other emotions exclaimed, Amen! And for the first time, the whole of my being, intellect, will, and emotions was united in one coordinated prayer operation. All at once, God was real Heaven was open, the Lord Jesus was luminously present, the Holy Spirit was indeed moving through my longings, and prayer was surprisingly vital. Moreover, in that instant, there came a sudden realization that heaven had been watching and listening all the way through those days of struggle against chilling moods and mutinous emotions. Also, that I had been undergoing necessary tutoring by my heavenly teacher." That's one of the hardest things to learn in prayer. I don't feel like that really doesn't matter. I don't feel like God hears me. That really doesn't matter. And see, what happened is they they weasel their way in and say, you don't feel like it, you shouldn't do it. Says who? Have your emotions ever been wrong? Uh, Yeah, pretty much a lot of the time. Let me end with this. You are either growing in prayer, or you're withering. Which is it? And if it's the second, what are you going to do about it? Oh, it's going to be a war. There's no question. But see, that's why you've heard me say before. I think prayer is one of the reasons, one of the ways that faith is demonstrated the most. I mean, I have Bible study. I can. I can touch my Bible and I can open study books and I can read things. They're tangible. I can come here and sit in a chair and shake your hand and hear about your life. But I go to the prayer closet. Nobody sees. All of my failures come back to stomp me into the ground. My emotions turn tail and run the other way like traitors. And here's what I'm left with. Will I believe God is who He says He is or not? Listen, this is for you. Draw nigh to God. He will draw nigh to you. He cannot be other than He is, but we have to do our part. It's labor, but it's a labor that's worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and i pray lord that you'd help us to help us to grow in this we're not going to reach full maturity in a day i know that but i pray you'd strengthen each one of us to press through the traitorous emotions and the ups and downs and the that lord the the droughts lord the frustrating times where we can pray for a half an hour even an hour and think i never even said anything my mind wandered My emotions stomped me into the ground. All I thought about was my failures. It was wasted time. Help us to know it's not wasted time. That you're pleased with the effort and you want to see a step towards you just like we're pleased when our little children step towards us no matter how many times they fall on the way. Help us, Lord, to be strengthened to stand up and come towards you because you are exactly who you say you are. And we can expect a welcome reception, though. You may let us war with some of these things for a time. Victory will come at last. Help us, Lord, to become more God-centered, more gospel-centered, more spiritually powerful because He that seeth in secret will reward openly. In Jesus' name, Amen.